Okay, so welcome to the sixth lecture in contract law. And in this lecture, we're going to continue talking about acceptances. So just to briefly get our bearings, the rule on acceptance, as I mentioned the last day, is the mirror image or flip side of the rule on offers. So when one party states their willingness to be bound on certain terms and conditions, they make an offer. And when the other party accepts those terms and conditions, they complete the contract, they form the contract, provided certain other conditions are met, which we'll be discussing in coming weeks. Now, in the previous lecture, I introduced the rule on acceptance and then discussed five qualifications to that rule. In today's lecture, I want to discuss two further qualifications or complications to the rule on acceptances. And these two complications and qualifications are quite important. And they give rise to issues that are very commonly used in assessments on contract law because they are complicated. So the, the two issues I want to raise have to do with the difference between an acceptance and a counteroffer, and how this then gives rise to something that has become known in case law as the battle of the forms. And the other thing I want to discuss is the odd rule about the communication of acceptance that arises in relation to post. So acceptance is communicated by post or you know traditional snail mail, if you like. So there's an odd quirky history to the rule in relation to acceptance by post, which has given rise to certain problems in modern contract law, which we'll discuss as well in this lecture. So let's start by looking at the first of those topics, uh, the distinction between a counteroffer and an acceptance. So be very simply and straightforwardly, what I would say is that you have to be clear about the distinction between an acceptance and a counteroffer. So if you go back to our imaginary scenario where you're purchasing a car from your friend, so suppose you meet with them, you look at the car, and you say to them, I am willing to buy your car for 1,000 euro. Well, you are then making an offer to your friend to purchase their car. What if they respond to you then by saying, well, how about 1,200 euro? Now, that communication is not an acceptance of your offer. They haven't stated a willingness to, to sell the car at 1,000 euro. They have introduced a new price, and that new price in law is deemed to be a counteroffer. And so it is then up to you to accept their counteroffer. So if you respond to them by saying, okay, I'll buy it for 1,200 euro, you've accepted their counteroffer. And the important thing in law is that a counteroffer kills the original offer. So you cannot resurrect the original offer unless you introduce it again. So for example, run through this line of communications again, I go to, you go down to your friend, you say, I'm going to buy your car for, t for 1,000 euro. They say, no, how about 1,200 euro? You come back and say, no, no, 1,000 euro is what it is. Your response to them is a counter-counter offer, and it's then up to them to accept that counter-counter offer. It's not a resurrection of the original offer in the eyes of the law. Okay, so this is an important idea, and it's something that examiners or people who draft contract law exams like myself try to catch you out on as to whether you understand this distinction between an acceptance and a counteroffer and the fact that a counteroffer kills the original offer. Okay, so there is a famous case 
on this point, which I'll mention now, which is the case of Hyde versus Wrench. It's an 1840 case, English case. So the case in question involves negotiations about the sale of a farm. So Wrench sends a letter to Hyde telling Hyde that he is willing to sell the farm for £1,000. Hyde responds saying, I will buy it for £950. Wrench never responds to this letter. Having received no response, Hyde sends another letter saying, oh, okay, I'll buy it for a thousand. So Hyde then subsequently brings a case saying that he has now accepted Wrench's original offer for £1,000, the sale of the farm for £1,000, but the court disagree with Hyde. They say that because he sent that other letter saying that he's going to buy it for £950, that's a counteroffer, and that killed the original offer from Wrench, and so Hyde could not resurrect that that original offer through the second letter saying, I'll buy it for a thousand. Okay, so it, there is actually a practical importance to this notion that a counteroffer kills the original offer because it means you can't send a follow-up communication if the person didn't like your counteroffer saying that you accept their original offer. So just one minor wrinkle with this idea from Hyde versus Wrench is that it's also important not to confuse a counteroffer with a request for further information. So you remember when we talked about offers, we said you don't confuse an offer with a request for a supply of information. You also shouldn't confuse a counteroffer with a request for additional information. So there's a case on this point called Stevenson, Jacques and Co. versus McLean. It's an 1880 English case. It involves the negotiations of the sale of iron. So McLean is selling iron to Stevenson, Jacques and Co. So what happens in the case is that McLean sends a letter to Stevenson saying that they are willing to sell iron at a particular price and that this offer to sell the iron is good for a period of time. There is no reply to that letter until the last day of the offer period. And on the last day of the offer period, Stevenson sent a telegram purporting to accept the offer, but then including an additional request stating, would you be willing to accept £40 for the iron for delivery over two months? Or if not, what's the longest time limit you would give? McLean then responds to this telegram by another telegram saying, we're sorry, you're too late. We just sold the iron to another party. And Stevenson aren't happy about this because they say, well, you made an offer to us and you said we had until a particular date to accept that offer and we feel we have accepted that offer. And McLean said, well, no, your telegram looking for this delivery time period deal was a counteroffer. But the court said, no, it wasn't a counteroffer. It was a valid acceptance. It, this telegram just included an additional request for information. So it didn't kill the original offer. Okay, so that's just one wrinkle with this idea of counteroffers. There's then another more important wrinkle or complication with counteroffers, which has to do with the phenomenon of the battle of the forms. So what is this? So one way to introduce this idea is to point out that, to a very large extent, the kinds of contracts that we've been talking about this far in the course are a historical anomaly or a fiction. Because we're assuming really throughout that 
We have parties who are negotiating over the terms and conditions of contracts between themselves. But very frequently that does not happen in the real world. What happens in the real world is a lot of companies have standard form contracts. So standard sets of terms and conditions on which they are willing to purchase or supply goods and services. And whenever they finalize a contract or finalize a trade, they don't negotiate the specific terms and conditions of these contracts. They just impose or supply their standard form contract to the other party and they ask them to accept it. But a problem arises when you have commercial enterprises or businesses doing this, where each party, each side to the contract has their own standard form contract and they each try to impose their standard form contract on the deal. So they each try to impose their own terms and conditions on the deal. And this gives rise to the phenomenon of the Battle of the Forums, where they're both exchanging standard form contracts with one another in an effort to ensure that it is their standard form contract that applies to the deal. So the scenario that arises here is you like have one company negotiating a contract. They send off their standard form contract to the other party, the other company, saying, you know, please sign the acceptance form. The other company says, no, here's our standard form contract. We send that to you. Please accept our standard form contract. The other party comes back and sends their standard form contract back again. This could go through multiple iterations. And the challenge for courts in these types of cases, if a dispute arises, is, well, was a valid contract formed? And at what point was the valid contract accepted? And you might say, well, surely it's straightforward in practice because either one side or the other will win the battle of the forms, will have their standard form contract accepted, and that will govern the deal. But the problem is that that doesn't always happen in practice. What sometimes happens in practice with commercial enterprises is that they start fulfilling the terms of a contractual deal, or they start performing their contractual promises before there has been a final and clear and unambiguous acceptance of one particular standard set of terms and conditions. And it is this, it is the performance of the promise under the contract or under the deal without the terms and conditions of the deal being finally and clearly accepted that gives rise to the problems in practice. So there are actually a lot of cases dealing with this point, and I think it's an important topic and an important phenomenon, so we will spend some time in class discussing some of these cases and some of the reasoning within them. In this audio lecture, though, I just want to quickly run through a few cases that I think illustrate some of the complexities that arise and some of the different approaches that the courts can take in these Battle of the Forums cases. And look, the most famous and widely discussed Battle of the Forum cases is the case of Butler Machine Tool Corporation versus Excello Corporation, which is an English case from 1979. And why it is widely discussed is because even though the judges in the case reach the same conclusion or outcome, they do so for different sets of reasons. And so it's interesting to see the reasoning on display in the different judgments. So what are the facts of this particular case? So what happens is that Butler, Machine Tool Corporation, send a price quotation for the supply of certain machines, industrial machines, to Accelo Corporation on the 23rd of May 1969. And this price quotation includes, on the reverse side, a set of Butler's standard terms and conditions. 
It also states that if Excello Corporation accepts this machine, this device that Butler are supplying, will be delivered within 10 months. On the 27th of May, 1969, Excello Corporation respond, agreeing to purchase the machine from Butler Corporation, but subject to an alternative set of terms and conditions on the reverse side of their letter, and there's an acknowledgement slip attached to these terms and conditions that should be signed by Butler. On the 5th of June, 1969, Butler respond, saying that they are happy to supply the machine, and they include the signed acknowledgement slip, but then, in signing it, they refer back to the original terms and conditions in their letter from the 23rd of May, so they say their original terms and conditions apply to this deal. So Butler then go off and make the machine, and they supply it to Excello Corporation. Now, as it happens, they don't deliver the machine until November 1970, which, for those of you who are good at math and dates, will realize is well beyond the envisaged 10-month time period under the original price quotation. And because it was so out of date, Butler actually asked Excello Corporation for additional money, because in their standard set of terms and conditions, there was something known as a price escalation clause, which entitled them to charge more for the machine if the cost of production had increased in the intervening time period, which it had. Or which they had, rather. So hopefully you can see what's happened here. There have been three communications between the parties. There's been a price quotation from Butler with their terms and conditions. There's been an acceptance or an agreement to purchase the machine from Accelo Corporation, but with their terms and conditions and an acknowledgement slip. Butler sign this acknowledgement slip, but in doing so, say that the terms and conditions in their original price quotation should apply to the deal, Butler have gone off and performed their side of the contract, and they think that under their terms and conditions they're entitled to charge extra due to an increase in price in costs. So as you can imagine, this leads to a legal dispute, the case comes before the court, and the challenge for the court is, well, did a valid or binding contract come into existence, and when? Did Excello Corporation accept Butler's offer, or did Butler accept Excello Corporation's counteroffer? So three judges from the English Court of Appeal get their teeth stuck into this particular case, and they all agree that Excello Corporation wins the Battle of the Forms, so their terms and conditions apply to the deal, but they disagree on the reasons why. So two of the judges, Lord Justice Lawton and Lord Justice Bridge, follow what they think is the rule set down in Hyde v. Wrench, which we mentioned earlier on, which is the standard rule on counteroffers. And so what they say is that Excello Corporation's agreement to buy, including their own preferred terms and conditions and the acknowledgement slip, that was a counteroffer to Butler's original offer. And Butler accepted that counteroffer by signing the acknowledgement slip attached to it, notwithstanding the fact that Butler referred back to their own terms and conditions in doing so. So let me actually just quote from the judgments of both Lawton and Bridge to illustrate this point. So Lord Justice Lawton says, In my judgment, the battle of the forms has to be conducted in accordance with strict rules, 
and the rules relating to a battle of this kind have been known for the past 130 years, and they were set down by Lord Langdale in the judgment in Hyde v. Wrench. When those rules are applied to this case, in my judgment, the answer is obvious. The sellers, Butler, started by making an offer. That offer was not accepted. The buyers were only prepared to have one of these machines on their own terms. The consequences of placing the order in that way was to kill the original offer. By signing the acknowledgement slip, Butler accepted the counteroffer. Lord Justice Bridge says something very similar, says, This is a case which on its facts is plainly governed by what I may call the classical doctrine that a counteroffer amounts to a rejection of an offer and puts an end to the effect of the offer. When one turns to the buyer's order of May 27, 1969, it is perfectly clear not only that that order was a counteroffer, but that it did not in any way purport to be an acceptance of the terms of the seller's offer dated May 23rd. The position then was, when the sellers received the buyer's offer of May 27th, that was an offer open to them to accept or reject. The printed tear-off slip taken from the order itself included the perfectly clear and unambiguous sentence that we accept your order on the terms and conditions stated thereon. So that seems very straightforward reasoning. Standard rules and counteroffer applies. Accelo Corporation got the last shot in in the Battle of the Forms. Butler accepted it by signing the acknowledgement slip. But, 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 Lord Justice Denning has a different view. And as I say, this isn't hugely surprising since Lord Justice Denning tended to take a different view on many of the standard rules of contract. So he reaches the same ultimate conclusion that Accelo Corp kind of win the Battle of the Forms but has a different set of reasons for doing so. So again, let me actually quote from his judgment to explain his reasoning. So what he says that is that in many of these cases, our traditional analysis of offer, counteroffer, rejection, acceptance, and so forth is out of date. The better way is to look at all the documents passing between the parties and glean from them, or from the conduct of the parties, whether they have reached agreement on all material points. There may be a consensus between the parties far short of a complete mode of expressing it, and that consensus may be discovered from letters or other documents of an imperfect or incomplete description. In the present case, I think the documents have to be considered as a whole, and as a matter of construction, I think the acknowledgement of June 5th is the decisive document. It makes clear that the contract was on the buyer's terms. So, I mean, ultimately here, Denning ends up in the same position as Lord Justice Lawton and Lord Justice Bridge, but the route that he takes to that conclusion is interesting and and worth paying some attention to and taking note of, because what he's saying here is kind of true, which is that the traditional rules of contract law like to categorize the documents and communications that are sent back and forth between parties into these neat conceptual categories, one document is an offer, the other document is a counteroffer, and the next document is an acceptance, or whatever the case may be. But the, in the real world, that sometimes isn't the case. There's lots of documents going back and forth between commercial enterprises, and it's sometimes unclear or ambiguous or uncertain as to which of them counts as an offer and which one counts as a counteroffer, if any of them do. So what Justice Denning is advocating in his judgment is saying, 
look, ignore this idea that you can neatly categorize all the documents. Look at all the documents that have been sent back and forth and see whether you can infer from those documents that there is some kind of agreement on the material particulars between the two parties. And he's saying that that's what he did in this case. And when he did that, he decided that, yeah, it really was Excello's terms and, corp- terms and conditions that applied to the deal. Now, there have been other important cases post-Butler versus Excello Corporation on this idea, and some of them seem to support what Denning is saying. And I'm going to run through those in one of the on-campus classes if the on-campus classes goes ahead. If not, I'll do another audio or video lecture discussing it. So I'm going to leave that to one side for the time being, this reasoning from Lord Justice Denning. But as I said, it's worth paying attention to and making note of. There's another thing I want to mention in relation to Battle of Forms cases is that there have been some cases where the documents that have gone back and forth between the two sides in a Battle of Forms scenario have been such that courts have decided that there has never been a formal agreement between the parties, and so there has never been a binding legal contract. And so that creates problems when one side of a deal thought there was an agreement and they performed their side of the promise. And the question is, what happens in that scenario if there is no valid contract, but you've performed your side of the deal, are you entitled to anything? And you are, potentially. So there is a case on this point, British Steel Corporation versus Cleveland Bridge Engineering Company from 1984. So the facts of this case involve negotiations for the supply of certain steel nodes that are necessary for the construction of bridges. So the the negotiations between the two sides to this case followed the typical battle of the forms. One aspect of the agreement became a stumbling block, which is that they could not agree on whether there should be progress payments for the delivery of the nodes or whether there should be liability for late delivery of the nodes. Now, despite the fact that there was no agreement on these issues, the British Steel Corporation went ahead and manufactured the steel nodes for the bridge, delivered them, and then the Cleveland Bridge Engineering Company refused to pay. And indeed, they actually countersued the British Steel Corporation for a late delivery of the nodes because this had led to certain commercial or profit-related damages to them. Now, in the judgment here, Lord Justice Goff considered the possibility that maybe there had been acceptance in this contract as a result of conduct, so following the rule in Brogdon versus Metropolitan Railway Company, but ultimately decided that that was inappropriate since there seemed to be a clear disagreement on the crucial issue of progress payment and late liability. So instead, what he concluded is that there was no contract at all between the parties, but he said that the British Steel Corporation could make a claim against Cleveland Bridge Engineering Company for the value of the work that they had done to date. So this is actually using principles from the law of restitution, which allows you to recover gains that have been made at your own expense for the benefit of another party where they were aware of of this benefit. But the amount that you can claim for the value of the work done might be less than what you need to run a profitable business. So it, it really just entitles you to the amount that you expended in producing them. So that's one thing that can happen if the battle of the forms has been so complicated 
that the court decides no contract ever came into existence. Just one final thing on Battle of the Forum scenarios. There is something called the Vienna Convention on Contracts for International Sale of Goods. And there's Article 19 of that convention, which isn't, again, legally binding, but does suggest that a materiality rule should apply to Battle of the Forms cases. So in other words, only if the new set of terms and conditions in the the counteroffer differ materially from the original terms and conditions should they be deemed to be a counteroffer that kills the original offer. And there's also something called the Unidrot Principles of International Commercial Contracts, which adopts a similar materiality rule. It states, in fact, in Article 2.1, that I reply to an offer which purports to be an acceptance but contains additional or different terms which do not materially alter the terms of the offer constitutes an acceptance unless the offeror, without undue delay, objects to the discrepancy. So you can see these international documents trying to address this problem arising from the Battle of the Forms. Okay, so that's everything I want to say for now on the Battle of the Forums. As I say, there are other cases which we'll try to get to and discuss. I want to move on now, however, to discuss the final complication in relation to acceptance, which is the postal rule and its various sequelae or sequelae. So one thing I mentioned to you in the previous lecture is that in order for an acceptance to be valid, it has to be communicated to the offeror. But when is it communicated to the offeror? So you might say, well, obviously, when the offeror reads it or hears it. But early on in the history of modern contract law, there was a discrepancy that arose when it came to the communication of acceptance via post. So you've got to bear in mind that, let's say, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, We didn't have modern instantaneous forms of communication at a distance. You really had two options when you're communicating with somebody. You either were in their vicinity and you could speak directly to them, or you had to rely on the post, which could take a period of days, depending on the distance that had to be traveled by the mail carriers. So this actually became a bit of a challenge for commercial enterprises that were concluding contracts via post. And the question arose as to whether a contract was accepted when a letter of acceptance was received by the offeror or when the letter of acceptance was posted, particularly bearing in mind that there could be problems with the delivery, that a a letter might get waylaid or mislaid by the Postal Service. And so there's a very famous old English case from 1818 called Adams v. Lincel, which establishes something called the Postal Rule, And the post rule stipulates that if you're accepting a contract by post, the acceptance is valid at the time that you send the letter, you send the post, not when it is received by the person to whom you're sending it. So, I mean, to some extent, the facts of Adams v. Linzel are not that important or interesting. It involves a contract for the sale of wool, and the communication is by post. Linzel makes the offer... He asks for a reply by post. Adams receives this letter. Three days later, he responds immediately by post, accepting it. But this acceptance is not delivered until four days later, so seven days have elapsed in total. By then, Linzel had sold the wool to a third party, and Adams 
brought a case against him, saying that he had concluded a valid contract with him, and the court agreed. And this ruling has been accepted many times over in the history of contract law. It's accepted in Ireland, so there's a case, an Irish case called Sanderson v. Cunningham, which accepts the postal rule, or applies the postal rule. It's a 1919 case. Sanderson is looking for an insurance policy. He sends a request to Cunningham. They're based in London. Cunningham sends back a proposal by post. Sanderson signs this, sends it back to Cunningham. Later on, he wants to sue Cunningham in Ireland, but he could only do so if the contract had been formed in Ireland, concluded in Ireland, and the court found against him, saying that the contract was actually concluded when Cunningham sent his proposal for acceptance back to Sanderson from London. So the contract was concluded in London. So this actually continues to be an issue to this day, and this is one of the reasons why the postal rule remains, because it determines where a contract was concluded, and that can be relevant both when you're bringing a case, you have to bring the case in the correct jurisdiction or locality, and it may also affect the governing law. So the the postal rule remains important to this day, but you have to admit that the postal rule is, is a bit odd and seems a bit weird and can lead to some harsh conclusions. So there's another English case that can illustrates the harshness of the postal rule, a case called Household Fire Insurance versus Grant. It's an 1879 decision. So here you have Grant issue an offer to take up an insurance policy with household fire insurance. Household fire insurance post out an acceptance, but this letter of acceptance is never actually received by Grant Household fire insurance then sue Grant because he has failed to pay his insurance premiums, and the court holds that Grant is liable, that the contract is complete as soon as household fire insurance sent the letter of acceptance. It doesn't actually matter that it was never received. Now, the harshness of this judgment has been modified a little bit subsequently, whereby courts have decided that the parties to a contract can prevent this problem from arising by stipulating it in writing that an undelivered letter is a valid acceptance. So there's a case called Holwell Securities Limited versus Hughes. It's a 1974 English case which involves the sale of land. And an offer letter there is sent to Holwell Securities, the plaintiffs, stating that the said option in land shall be exercisable by notice in writing at any time within six months. The plaintiffs then send a letter of acceptance that is never received by the defendant. They try to enforce the contract, and the defendant refuses, and the court held that there was no contract here because it was clear that the offer letter sent by the defendant to the plaintiff required notice. And so that implies that an undelivered letter would not be sufficient for consideration. So it kind of suggests that the court are willing to find creative solutions to the harshness of the postal rule as evinced in the household fire insurance case. So look, the the postal rule remains valid to this day with all its oddities in place, but where it becomes interesting is whether it applies to modern forms of communication, more instantaneous forms of communication that seem a little bit like letter, like post, but aren't. So, I mean, the the example that'll spring to your mind will be email or text messages or something like that, instantaneous text-based forms of communication. 
But the example that has arisen in historical case law has been more telegrams and telex machines that are also outmoded now forms of instantaneous communication via text. So there have been a couple of cases on this trying to determine whether these forms of instantaneous text-based communications should follow a different rule to the postal rule. And the basic gist of it is that they should follow a different rule, that really in instantaneous text-based communications, acceptance is valid at the time that the acceptance is received by the offeror, but it does depend a little bit on the particulars of the case and the negotiation between the parties. So let me just mention two English cases on this point. The first case, I actually mentioned it at the start of the previous lecture on acceptances, is the Entorres versus Miles Far East Corporation case from 1955. So I didn't mention the facts of the case when I first brought this up. I just used it because of the useful illustration from the judgment of Lord Justice Denning on the importance of communication of acceptance. So the facts of this case are that Entorres send an order for copper plates from their office in London to the defendant's offices in Amsterdam, and they send this order via a telex machine, which, as I mentioned, is an outmoded form of instantaneous communication, text-based communication. Miles then send a reply via telex accepting this offer, this order, and Torres then want to sue Miles for non-performance of the contract, but they want to do so in England using the rules of English contract law, and to do this, they needed to show that the contract was formed in England. It was finalized in England. Now, bear in mind that acceptance is what finalizes the contract. If the postal rule applied to telex devices, then the, the contract would have been finalized in Amsterdam as soon as Miles Corporation sent their acceptance via the telex machine. So what happens in the case? So what happens is that the courts decide that a different rule, a different rule from the postal rule should apply to instantaneous communications and that acceptance is only valid once it has been received by the offeror. So quoting from the judgment of Lord Justice Denning here, my conclusion is that the rule about instantaneous communications between the parties is different from the rule about the post. The contract is only complete when the acceptance is received by the offeror and the contract is made at the place where the acceptance is received. So in other words, the contract is finalized in London and Tories are entitled to sue in London using English contract law principles. So that case seems to suggest that the postal rule definitely does not apply to instantaneous forms of communication. But there is a later case which adds a complication to this. So there's a case called Brinkabon Limited versus Stahag Stahl. It's a 1983 English case. Here you have Brinkabon purchasing steel from Stahag Stahl. Stahag Stahl are based in Vienna. Stahag Stahl send their acceptance via a telex machine and they send this outside of ordinary office hours. An issue then later arose regarding the country in which the contract was formed, and it was held to be formed in England upon receipt of the telex from Stahag Stahl, but in the course of reaching this judgment, Lord Justice Wilberforce said the following. He said that no universal rule can cover all such cases 
they must be resolved instead by reference to the intentions of the parties, by sound business practice, and in some cases by a judgment of where the risks should lie. So one of the suggestions here is that Stag Stahl kind of shot themselves in the foot by sending their telex message outside of ordinary office hours. And if they had sent it during ordinary office hours, a different conclusion might have been reached. Now, just one last point in all this. You may wonder whether there's any more definitive rule in relation to you know modern forms of instantaneous communication, like emails and so forth, or e-commerce transactions if you're buying something through a website. And there are, uh, there's something called the E-Commerce Act in Ireland, which stipulates that electronic communications like email or purchasing something through a web page should be treated as the equivalent to instantaneous communications. And so acceptance is valid once it's received by the offeror. But it does allow for the possibility that parties may have clearly communicated alternative intentions regarding when acceptance is to be valid. And if they do have clearly communicated alternative intentions, then a different approach may apply. So, I mean, to to sum up here, it seems to be the case that the default rule in relation to instantaneous text-based communications is that the postal rule does not apply and that acceptance is only valid once it's received by the offeror. But it is open to the parties to deviate from that default rule through some kind of clearly expressed intention to the contrary, or depending on the particular facts of cases, it might be appropriate to apply something closer to the postal rule. Okay, so that is a little bit longer than the previous lectures. I appreciate that. But that then completes our discussion of acceptance. And so in the next lecture, I want to do a bit of a final wrap-up on the rules about offer and acceptance and return to the topic I posed in Lecture 2, which is whether agreement really is foundational to contract. Because now that we've gone through all the rules on offer and acceptance, we might want to revisit the statement or claim that I made in Lecture 2.